How's everybody doing? A couple of us. How many of you are here? Raise your hands. All right, good, good. Grab a Bible. We're going to Mark chapter 1. Um, we are uh, in the middle of a series. Actually, not the middle. We are nearing the end of our series called The Kingdom, Following Jesus in Times of Chaos. We have been going verse by verse through the book of Mark for the last year and a half or so. And we are going to end on Easter Sunday. So we've got a lot of text to get through today. I'm excited, but a couple of things. Um, in the back, you see this light-colored card, and on it, it says this. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish rabbi lived, died, and was raised from the dead. That was only the beginning. Easter, April 8th, 2012, at the Garden, 9 and 11 services. Here's what I want to invite you. If you call the Garden home, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should take stacks of these and pass them out to friends, to coworkers, to to neighbors. Uh, Easter is one of the only times that people that normally don't come to church will come to church. And uh, we're not doing a campaign of flyers or, or you know, advertisement. We expect the followers of Jesus Christ to do what we're called to do, and that's spread the gospel around. So would you spread the good news to your friends? Good? Okay, that's one thing. Second thing, sign up for the Women's Connect or Women's Retreat. Women, I know there's like woot woots and hollers. That's going to be exciting. Um... I just want to talk about a couple of things before I jump in. This is like a heavy, for me, it's a heavy kind of text as we're moving into the cross and all that stuff. So what else? Oh, babies. How awesome was last week? Yeah. For those of you that weren't here, we had six babies dedicated. And it was so fun. And we had a blast. And so if some of you want to have a baby dedicated, you first have to have a baby. And... And some of you need a spouse, and then you need to have a baby. Um, but then we can do dedications. We'll do them again in the future, because there's a lot of pregnant people. Um, I was just with the youth group, actually, right before I came into here. And I was doing highs and lows. And one of um, your sons, um, no names, uh, when doing his low, sa- said that the Hunger Games wasn't violent enough for him. So... <laughs> He said that the books detail it all out, in, or describe it all in detail, and it wasn't like that on the screen. So, anyone with a son in there that's seen Hunger Games at 12 o'clock, um, go talk to your son. No, it was, I was dying laughing. That was quite hilarious. Um, anyways, okay, where, where are we? Um, so, the kingdom of God. We are uh, going to finish this series in a couple weeks, so we're going to go through um, 50 verses or so of scripture today. And um, I've written a message that I just want to share. And the goal of today is simply to remind us of where we've been the last year and a half or so. And then to really land in what Mark is doing in this text. So um, I'm going to read what I've written rather than do whatever I normally do, which is different every week. So, you with me? Okay. Um, We've walked through the narrative of Mark, writing, and Mark is writing to a church in Rome 30 years after Jesus has died and raised from the dead. Um, Mark writes a biography of the Jesus of Nazareth. He's explaining his life and message with the sole purpose of reminding the followers of Jesus of what it means to be his disciple. Mark had to write the story to help people remember their faith and what it meant for them to be disciples of Jesus. You see, somehow, 
people had already forgotten what it meant 30 years after Jesus had lived, died, and raised from the dead. That's the purpose of this book. It's to remind us what it means to follow Jesus. As a disciple, you see somehow Mark got wind that this is, this is what was going on. People were forgetting what it means to be a disciple. Maybe it was because their family members began to disown them for having this type of faith. Maybe it's because neighbors were calling them out and speaking poorly of them, calling them crazy, strange. Maybe it's their, their friends began to reject them thinking they're part of a cult um, or that they were heretics. Or maybe it's because people in this new religion called Christianity began to get killed for their beliefs. You see, they believed in crazy things like the resurrection of the dead. And they believed that God had sometime in the past had manifested himself in a person named Jesus and that Jesus lived, died, was killed on a cross and rose from the dead. Maybe it's because the members of the church began to accommodate their faith and their practice of Christianity to look more like the rest of the world. At this time, Christians, 30 years later, were already rejecting the radical claim of faith and began to assimilate comfortably into the world called the Roman Empire. Mark writes to remind his followers of what it's all about. The climate, the setting that Christians were living in in Rome when Mark is writing this is that Christians were being questioned. They were being spit on. They were being persecuted. They were being beaten. They were being murdered and killed. And at the same time, some were being complacent, were being distracted, living in fear. Um, they were consumers and gossipers and gluttons. And they were denying their faith in everyday, ordinary ways. And even worse than that, and this is why Mark does what he does, they were forgetting the story of God. They weren't just denying Jesus. They were forgetting his story. This is why Mark begins in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to go through a couple of verses. So go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is why Mark begins with this proclamation. It's the title of his book, The Beginning of the Good News of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This frames the book of Mark. If you recall, you were here a year and a half ago when we began this. We looked at the Old Testament, how Mark is not saying that this is actually the beginning. He's saying that this is the continuation of the story of God, the continuation of the Old Testament, that Jesus actually is the fulfillment of all things. That he is simply a continuation, the embodiment of the story of Israel, now embodied as the Messiah, the Son of God. This is how Mark sets, up, sets the tone for the rest of the book. And then he, he gives us the message that Jesus proclaims. And this is the message we've been unpacking for a year and a half. And we're so familiar with this. But Jesus comes to a small town in a small country occupied by an oppressive empire. And he says this, the time is filled. This is verse 15. The time is filled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. His message, Jesus' message, is and was that the kingdom of God, the reign, the rule, the way of life, the way life was intended to be in the first place, a life marked by shalom, a life marked by peace, by justice, by wholeness, by righteousness, by healing, by freedom, a life marked by new hearts and new spirits, by the Holy Spirit, that life is at your fingertips. That's what he's saying in this message. All of that is at your fingertips. You can reach out and touch it. 
You can grab it. It's not someplace else. It's right here. It's not some other time. It's right now. This reality is to be experienced. This is the announcement that Jesus came proclaiming. And he says when he's eating with the worst kinds of people, in Mark chapter 2, go there, Mark chapter 2, verse 17. He's eating with the worst kinds of people. He says this, verse 17, I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. In other words, in his kingdom, everyone gets to play. The kingdom isn't just for the wealthy, the elite, or those that have it figured out, or those that have some type of spiritual awareness or, or sensitivity, the moral kind, but those that have no clue at all. Those that w- are the worst kinds of people, they're the least kinds of people, they're the kind of people you don't want around you, they're the kind of people that will never get a chance or never get ahead, they're the, team, they're the kinds of people you don't want on your team. And Jesus says to them, actually, you have access, I want you on my team, as you are, not as you should be. That's the message of the kingdom. Everyone gets to participate. In other words, with this beautiful message, wholeness, is available for the broken. Healing is available now for the sick. Justice is present for those that have been taken advantage of. New hearts are here for those that think their hearts are dead, cold, and dry, or stones. Righteousness is the new name for the sinner, the addict, and the habitual screw-up. Peace is available for the anxious the tired and the weary. And life is given to all of us that only know death. This is what Mark meant when Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The message doesn't stop there though. We've looked at this in many different ways. But Jesus goes on to say, well, repent and believe in the good news. And it's not just about turning away from your sins, but it's about aligning yourselves with this new reality that the kingdom, that God's way of life is breaking in. Become a full participant in the expression of God's way of life on earth as it is in heaven. This is the call for anyone that hears the message, that believes in the message, that takes the message and said, yes, I believe. The call is to become a practitioner now of peace, of hope, of joy, of love of justice. Jesus invites us to become the answer to our own prayers. He he invites us not to sit with tickets going to heaven, but to become a person that brings heaven on earth. We're invited to spread God's way of life around our little kingdoms to spread his way of life in our neighbors, with our neighbors, with, in our neighborhoods, with our friends. When people come over for a meal, we spread a life bursting with hope and joy, even in the darkest of circumstances. That's the message we're called to live out. Do you see a theme emerging? And Mark is writing with this message in, in heart and mind. And he's writing to a group of followers that had forgotten what it means to be salt and light. He's writing to a church that had forgotten the, this part of the story that we are to proclaim with word, to demonstrate with deed, 
and to live with power from on high. Even 66 AD, the church had been distracted by issues. They questioned their purpose, they questioned their faith, they questioned their, their lives, and they looked more and more, for some of them, like the society and world around them. And some of them even began to deny the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is why Mark has to write about the life of Jesus. We have creeds that were written 300 years after the life of Jesus. And the creeds talk about to believe in Jesus, that he is God, absolutely, Trinity, absolutely. And that he, he, was, he was born of the Virgin Mary and died under, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. We know the Nicene creeds, the apostolic creeds, you know what I'm talking about? We, 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 we claim those things, but Mark writes about the life of Jesus. The Gospels are about the life of Jesus. Why? Because how he lived matters to us. He modeled a lifestyle for us to embody ourselves. And so we read in Mark's Gospel throughout 16 chapters, you just see Jesus preaches and teaches a provocative, subversive message. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He welcomes the poor and the stranger into his life. He brings wholeness to a leper, to many lepers. He touches the untouchable. He eats with the outcasts. He welcomes the, the losers as his successors and calls them to, to be his disciples and his friends. He defies a heartless religion, brings it meaning, value, and relationship. He calms storms. He walks on waters. He feeds the hungry. He heals the blind, the deaf, and the mute. He prophesies and he tells us that his mission, his ministry, his kingdom will come through suffering and one of the cross. And then he tells his followers in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life, life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. He makes it perfectly clear. In chapter 8, he says, if, if anyone wants to be my follower, deny yourself and pick up your cross. That if you want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. And then he reminds us what his kingdom's like. I mean, we just go through Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Mark 9, 35. He says, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. To those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus' words are pretty clear. If you want to be first, you become last and servant to all. He says in Mark 10, verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom with, with no expectation, with little expectation, if you don't receive the kingdom, if you, if you, if you can't receive it powerless, in powerlessness, you won't receive the kingdom of God. You have to become, to children in that society, the least kind of person. He says in Mark 12, verse 29, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He takes an entire system of laws, 613 laws of Moses, and boils it, boils it down to one commandment that has two parts, love God and love your neighbor. And he says, the kingdom is about right relationship with God and others. That's it. The fulfillment of the law is found in your relationship with God expressed in your relationship with others. 
He gives us right access to right relationship with God. And Jesus models this type of life all the way up until his death. Mark writes to us about the life of Jesus by way of a reminder that we would remember what it means to follow Christ. In Roman antiquity, if you were going to tell a story of someone that lived, a hero, you would write about how they would die. How did they die? How someone died in Roman antiquity was ex expressed his true character, his or her true character. How they died revealed the message of how they lived. This is in the Roman culture. So we, we read about this because the Romans would go take pains to explain in detail what would happen to their conquered heroes. And we get this. We, we, we cherish these stories. We, we love this, the story of William Wallace as he spits out the poison before he goes to get tortured to death. And, and he, he's on his deathbed being tortured and he yells at the top of his lungs, Freedom! He dies as a valiant warrior committed to his cause. Nathan Hale, the American revolutionary who, uh, who was caught by the British and his last words are, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. His dying words are that he wished he had more lives to give for his country. Socrates, his death was uh, as he walked to his executioner, he was teaching his disciples the message he had been pre preaching to them all along. Calm, poised, collected, celebrated as a martyr, even by the Romans. The book of Mark has 16 chapters. A third of the book is Jesus' last week up until his death. A sixth of the entire book is how he died. Mark wants to reveal to his followers, Jesus' followers, how Jesus died. Because that means something about how he lived. And it means something about his nature and character. I'm going to read 50 or so verses um, from Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible, go to Mark 14. We're going to start in verse 26. This is a long section of scripture. In the early church, they, you know, they would read all of the letters in one sitting. We break it up passage by passage and that's great but I, I'm afraid some of us have a lack of attention but I want to invite you to um, either close your eyes if you'd like as I read this and try to get into the scene of what's happening this is a step-by-step -step process of what's going on the night before Jesus is sent to be crucified and it's important that we capture what Mark is saying um, if you want to read with me let's read but I invite you just to see what's happening as we read this together Verse 26. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. 
They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. Going on a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake for one hour? Keep awake and pray that you will not come into a time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went up and prayed, saying the same words. And once again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and he said, Are you still sleeping? Taking your rest. Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of his disciples deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the, and all the chief priests. The elders and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest of the council were looking for a testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimonies against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent. And did not answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him. And they struck him, saying, Prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him.
And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed. And the servant girl, on seeing him, began again, saying to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse, and he swore an oath. I do not know this man you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Can you see it play out? Do you see what's happening to our Messiah? What can we learn as disciples from this part of the story? As Jesus prays in Gethsemane, we see a different kind of story. This is not a valiant warrior prepared to die. It's someone who experiences horror, sorrow, and internal pain that forces him in the Greek language to fall onto the ground over and over and over again. As Jesus prays in Gethsemane, which is translated oil press, he himself is pressed by what's in front of him. He's pressed and revealing to us, not his divine nature, but revealing to us his authentic and raw humanity in the worst moment of his life. Other passages say that he sweats blood in torment. The language is absolutely horrific. What Jesus is experiencing is absolute pain. Mark reveals a different side of Jesus, a human nature, one that's questioning the daunting task in front of him. Some scholars say it's the the fear of the cross, that he's about to be martyred and beaten and flogged and killed on an extremely painful execution device. But most scholars believe Jesus is not praying in fear for that, actually. But he's pressed because he's going to experience God's forsakenness. That Jesus is facing utter abandonment of his Abba. It's the first time Mark uses the Aramaic word Abba. Abba means daddy. It's an intimate expression of, of relationship, of playfulness and love. Jesus up until this point had only experienced intimate embrace from the, God, the Father of Heaven. At the beginning of his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is baptized, baptized, and a voice from heaven comes and says, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. A few chapters later, in Mark chapter 9, he goes on top of a mountain, and the same voice says, This is my Son, the Beloved. His identity was, he was Abba's child. He only knew the intimate validation of the belovedness of God. He had lived in intimate relational obedience to the Father. You could say, through Jesus' life, the kingdom of God, modeled by Jesus, is extended through those who live intentionally dependent upon a relational obedience to a loving God. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is extended through those who will live intentionally dependent upon a relational obedience to a loving God. We see a glimpse into the story of Jesus 
where he prays three times, take this cup from me. This cup representing the wrath of God that would be poured out on him for all of us, for everyone that will ever live. He takes on the sin of humanity, the rebellion of humanity, and faces the consequences from a just God. And it was the fear of the separation, the abandonment, the wrath of God over him that he prays to a God that he knows all things are possible for those who believe. He had taught his disciples earlier that all things are possible for those who believe. And he comes to that very God and says, all things are possible. I petition you in the truth of who you are. If it's possible, take this cup from me. But not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but your will. Jesus prays for an answer that's left unanswered. Jesus prays for an outcome that does not become reality. How many of us can relate to this type of humanity? The type of humanity that prays over and over and over and over again for an outcome, but God does something else. Mark is revealing something powerful to us. The night where the mission could, uh, would have been compromised, Jesus stands alone. He prayed for something to happen and it doesn't. He, he needed that night his closest friends to stand with him in prayer. And they can't. They don't. He's left alone. Can we, can we understand the fear of abandonment? The fear of loneliness? of expecting community to surround us in our time of trial and seeing nothing, coming back again to seeing your closest friends sleep in your time of trial. Can you imagine that pain? On the night the mission could have been compromised, Jesus stood his ground. The night before the cross, victory had already been won. You see, the victory wasn't decided in the court of the high priest. It was decided outside of the city in Gethsemane. When Jesus asked three times for the cup to be taken away, and three times said, not what I want, but what you want, and chose to model kingdom life, which is aligning his own agenda and mission to the mission of God. He said in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe. Remember, align yourself with this message, with God's way of life. Jesus, in this instant, aligns himself to the point of death on a cross for our sake. He becomes a willing participant. Jesus had already, the story continues, Jesus had already prophesied about Peter's denial. He talked about his death, his arrest. Earlier in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, it said that Jesus, Jesus said this, I will be handed over to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn me to death. They, they will hand me over to the Gentiles. They will mock me. They will spit on me. They will flog me. And they will kill me. He knew exactly what was going to happen because he orchestrated the entire thing. How are we doing in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? Are you warming yourself up by the fire? Have you fled in fear and disappointment that your Messiah, your King, is captured 
and he didn't raise a finger to rebel against it. Are you disappointed by Jesus? It's no surprise to us that we see the disciples desert him and that there's a symbol of one disciple being fleeing the scene naked, pointing us to Genesis 3 of being naked and in shame, revealing to us that we too stand in difficult circumstances, disappointed with Jesus, fleeing from the scene. I can relate to that. Mark might be hinting about what it looks like to live with Jesus in fear rather than faith. To live fleeing rather than live in freedom. Jesus then stands before the chief priests. And this is really important, guys. We've got to catch what Mark is doing in this particular passage. Other Gospels share it in a different way. But why was the Messiah crucified? Why does Jesus have to die? Why was he incriminated? Jesus is questioned, first of all, as a false prophet. The charge against him was a common charge. And the the Old Testament scripture talked about what happens when you're confronted by false prophets. They said in the Old Testament that people would come and they they would perform miracles and have signs and wonders. And they would lead Israel and lure Israel away from Israel's God and law. And you can imagine, imagine Jesus' message saying that the Sabbath no longer applies, that the temple is no longer relevant, that the sinners are now invited in. All of that stuff was tearing down the religion that had been established over time. That's what a false prophet came to do, but you wouldn't be killed for it. Not always. That's not what got him killed. It wasn't the statements about the temple that got him killed. Jesus was speaking in a way that could also be explained that he was a true king. And if you went around telling people in the Roman Empire that you were the king, yeah, maybe you would be crucified by a Roman governor. That was common. But that's not why Jesus got killed, guys. According to Mark, it's the answer to this question. Look at verse 61. Mark chapter 14, verse 61. The high priest comes to him and says, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus' response incriminates him. Says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with clouds of heaven. He brings two scriptures together, Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and the combination is explosive. It wasn't the I am statement, hinting of the divine name of Yahweh from Exodus when Moses is confronted by God with a burning bush. It wasn't that. It was the two biblical texts of Psalm and Daniel coming together. And if if I could translate it for you, this is what it would have been. This is what the response would have been like. Are you the Messiah? Yes. I am the true prophet. Yes, what I said about the temple will come true. Yes, I am the Messiah. You will see me vindicated, and my vindication will mean I share the very throne of Israel God, of Israel's God. In other words, Jesus was saying to the high priest, I am going to play the role that God was intended to play. This is what gets Jesus killed. Jesus claims to take the role that God, only God, could play, according to the Old Testament scripture. So he tears his clothes, the sign of blasphemy, and they condemn him to death. Jesus doesn't use a parable to disguise his subversive message. The mask comes off. Jesus is killed because he is the divine son of God. Simple. 
The story continues in verse 65, and I just want you to imagine this part happening simultaneously with Peter's denial. It says, verse 65, Some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him and they struck him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards also took him over and beat him. As a reader, we have to read this intimately watching our Messiah take on our death on his way to the cross, abandoned, questioned, condemned, beaten, mocked, spit on, deserted, betrayed, and alone. And all we can do is watch two stories happen at the same time. One of a disciple warming himself by a fire and the other, the leader, being beaten to death, silent. And the verse from chapter 8, verse 34 comes to mind. If anyone wants to become followers, let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For those of you who want to save your life will lose it. Those of you who lose their life for my sake or for the sake of the gospel will save it. And there we see as the guards beg for Jesus to prophesy, mocking him, beating him, Peter denies Jesus three times. As they ask for a prophecy, Jesus' prophecy comes true. As they ask him to reveal himself as a true prophet of Israel, it's happening in the courtyard as his best friend, his disciple, denies him three times. Now just imagine you're reading the story and you're a follower of Jesus 30 years after his death and the leader of the church is, is a guy named Peter. Imagine written into the story of your church, the foundational literature of your church reveals a massive failure of your leader. Remember, Peter is speaking this, this, this story. He's the eyewitness to the book of Mark. He's reciting this to John Mark, the author. It's under Peter's direction that he wants to make sure this goes into the story. That when Jesus needed him most, he failed. How would you like to have that written about your worst stumbling, sin, failure? Written to the doctrine of what organization life is a massive failure. But here's what's, what's so important about this. This isn't the end of the chapter for, Mark, for Peter. A few months later, in Mark chapter 4, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 4, Peter will stand before the same exact court in the Sanhedrin, proclaiming the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he will be so bold that the Sanhedrin court can't refute him, and they take note that this man had been with Jesus. His story isn't finished. After he falls down a few chapters later, he gets right back up and on Easter morning, I'm sorry, on Pentecost, he stands and delivers a message and 3,000 people are saved. Mark is writing this intentionally because we can relate to Peter. We can relate to failing over and over and over again, even after it was spoken over us. And some of us can relate as we weep over the bitter ashes of what could have been of our life. And the story of Peter, which we'll get into in our next series, we're doing a series called The Resurrection Project. What happens with these ordinary people when they're filled with the Spirit? His story isn't finished. 
So Mark's intention, excuse me, of this great narrative, of this story, is to get his followers to ask this question. Where are you? Who are you? Where are you in this story? In this small narrative of what happens to Jesus, his followers, and those that were closest to him? Are you enthusiastic like Peter, sitting at the table of fellowship on the night of the Passover meal, saying to Jesus, I will never deny you, I will die with you, and then a few moments later, standing outside doing the very same thing you said you wouldn't do? Maybe that's you, over and over again. Maybe you found yourself hoping that you can bring the kingdom of God in a different way than what's being explained. Maybe you hope to find yourself doing a different form of discipleship, one that avoids the cross at all costs. Hoping that you can bring the kingdom through other means, means like being simply nice. Maybe you're expecting to bring the kingdom of God, this radical reality, through politeness, through giving a little bit of money here and there, through showing up on Sundays once a week, maybe through giving um, uh, to the homeless guy that asks for a couple of bucks, maybe it's by watching what you say, by dressing modestly, maybe your, your expression of the kingdom of God is saying the right things and trying to fit in. Maybe that's your message. Do we think maybe that the kingdom will come through men and women who don't spend time in an intimate, ongoing, loving relationship with the God who longs to be with us? Maybe we think that we can extend the kingdom when we're not listening to the voice of the Father saying over and over and over again, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. If we can't sit in that type of relationship, we can't expand this thing called the kingdom of God. What kind of message as Jesus followers are we spreading? Because Mark was concerned with this. Are we talking to people about going to heaven someday, sometime else? Are we becoming the kinds of people that bring heaven on earth? These are the questions we're supposed to ask as we read this passage of scripture. Maybe you're like me and you've simply just compromised the gospel. You've made it about what feels right and good and You lack any substance at times of a transformed life. You lack the transformative power of God in your life. Because it's too hard. It's too inconvenient. Reading a couple chapters of scripture is not on my calendar for the month. Brothers and sisters, the message I want to say today is simply this. This too is denying Jesus Christ. Every time we accommodate the message to fit into this world, we deny our Savior. Every time we allow our brother and sister to go hungry in the city, we deny the resurrected Messiah. Every time we think that Christianity can be a title that we wear on Sundays without an authentic, ongoing, loving relationship with the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we deny the resurrected Messiah. Every time we corrupt this provocative message, with this accommodated, quasi-committed lifestyle, we deny Jesus. Every time we don't stand up for injustice, we deny Jesus Christ. When we choose not to forgive, 70 times 7, we deny Jesus Christ. Every time we think we could have Christ without the cross, we deny Jesus Christ. 
Mark was really concerned 30 years after Jesus' death about the followers of Jesus Christ and the way they were living. Because the way Jesus died reveals to us how we are called to live. So my question this morning is, what are you going to do about it? If you're new with us, welcome. (laughs) Sometimes we have to do this. But for those of us that are followers of Jesus, this is the message of the kingdom. Will you stand outside the gates keeping warm, denying your Savior, or will you pick up your cross and follow Jesus to your death? Discipleship isn't just come and see. It becomes come and die. Hopefully, if I've done what I feel God's asked me to do this morning, you feel a heaviness. You feel a weight that you're trying to sort out right now. Maybe some of you feel guilty and shameful. And you're just thinking, yep, again, I don't meet the mark. Got it, check. Yep, I get it. I'm, I'm just like Peter, denying, yep. And just the weight is pressed heavier and heavier on you. Good. Good. Because my intention and the intention I have today is that we can't get to Easter without recognizing that we put Jesus on the cross. That discipleship is not a cozy gathering of singing songs, but it's about picking up a cross, a splintery, old, nail-pierced cross, and carrying this heavy thing up hills, because that's what Jesus has asked us to do. It's denying ourselves and living like Jesus died. So I want to say this. If you're feeling those things, don't run. Don't even think about running. Bring them to God right now. Listen to the loving voice that wants to hear you say to Him, it hurts. I feel, I feel I'm not good enough. I feel like I blow it all the time. I feel like I'm never going to see this change in my life. Bring that deep despair that's deep in the center of your heart to Jesus this morning. And just be real. Don't put on a smile face. Don't pretend you got it figured out. Because we need to sit with this one. I'm going to try to write some afterthoughts on this message. But the question after is, how do we begin to live this out? And for me, it's, it's, how how do we begin to take seriously this call of discipleship, of relationship, of kingdom. And, and you guys, there's no quick answer. There's no three steps to powerful transformation by the Holy Spirit. There's no three steps to learning how to die to yourself every day. That's not how it works. It's like a relationship. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes commitment and discipline. And when you forget, it, it means you remember and get back on the right track. And when you fall, you get back up and you keep going. That's what discipleship is. It means you come as you are in all of your despair and say, I'm never going to be good enough. And you change that false narrative and say, I am good enough. Now I'm going to try to live out better behaviors. But it starts with first coming back to this place and just sitting.
Can we do that this morning? Let's do that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Hopefully you feel... <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to hope anything. I just pray. Let me just pray for us. Lord, we give you the ashes of our despair. We come feeling the weight of shame, knowing that we too would flee naked if we could. We come recognizing that there have been so many moments in our lives where we continue to deny you over and over and over again in much more subtle ways. Lord, that we've accommodated a message of of life change, of kingdom reality bursting through the seams of this place. And we've made it about singing songs on Sunday and picking up a devotional book and not experiencing the powerful reality of you as God inside of us. So Lord, we come wherever we are and ask you to come meet us there. Meet us in the crushed spirit, the broken hearts, the pain, the anger, the doubt, the fear, and meet us this morning.